title of today's message is I Am Yahweh, kind of a subtitle of what's in a name. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning and seeing what is all involved in the name of God. And we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3, uh, verse 14, and then later in Exodus chapter 6, if you want to just put your thumb there in your Bibles. And I want to begin today by just asking a question. Over the years, how have you been introduced? I know in my life, I've been introduced in a number of ways. When I was a child and I was at a family gathering on my mother's side, I was introduced as Patty's son, or Arnold and Artis's grandson. After my parents separated and I was at a family gathering on my mother's primary boyfriend's side, which was quite often because they were Italian, and somebody asked me who I was, either in English or Italian, I'd say I was Tony's girlfriend's son. If there was a family gathering on my father's side, I would be, oh, wait a second. Oscars don't have family gatherings. Yeah. We're just a bunch of introverts. Yeah. But when I was 18 years old, if I had a rather large African-American man named Staff Sergeant Monk in front of me screaming, asking me who I am, I would respond with, Drill Sergeant! The private's name is Private Oscar Drill Sergeant. At Christmas 1991, I introduced myself to a young woman saying, hi, I'm John, Jamie's brother. That woman is sitting here today in the front row. I actually have it in the back row in my message. <laughs> in 1993, I went through several more title and name changes. The first name change came in May. I graduated from technical school class and now was John Oscar EMT Basic. About that same time, I became John Oscar, the father of Haley Oscar. In July, John Arnold Oscar, son of John, of John David Oscar, died, and I was born again as John, son of God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. In October, I had yet another title change. John Oscar, husband of Tammy Tritt, who also had a name change, and now she's Tammy Oscar. 1993 was a pretty good year. In 1996, I became John Oscar, paramedic. In 2001, I became Pastor John Oscar, credentialed through our first church, Lakeshore Tabernacle. When we left that church, we went to Prayer House, and in 2007, I became again Pastor John Oscar, licensed minister through the Assemblies of God, followed by ordination in 2010. These are just a few of the ways that people could have referred to me over the years. And over the years, we use the appropriate honorifics and appropriate titles during appropriate times. For example, if I'm at work and I'm filling out an EMS report, I sign it J. Oscar, NRCCP, 53261. John Oscar, Nationally Registered Critical Care Paramedic, and my license number. If I'm signing an official church document, like when I signed the receipt for the, for the flowers this morning, I signed it Reverend John Oscar. Even though I don't necessarily demand that people call me this, in this setting most people call me pastor. However, when I introduce myself to somebody I don't know, whether it's here or at work or whatever, um, whatever situation I'm in, I just simply introduce myself as John. And most of us could give a list of titles and a list of 
different things that we've done in our life where your title may have changed. You, you may identify yourself according to your job. You may identify yourself according to your position in life. Maybe you're a teacher or a mother or a father or garbage collector or pastor or whatever you are. You sometimes identify yourself as a, as a title and job positions that you've had in life. And one of the titles we celebrate today is that of mother, isn't it? Being Mother's Day. Part of our mission and vision statement is to know God. When I was in prayer almost two years ago about becoming the pastor here, I was impressed by the Holy Spirit to have that as the first priority of our church. To have that being the leading statement of our vision and mission statement is to know God. Because I believe that the better we know God, the more that we're going to love him, the more we're going to obey him, the more that we can be used by him, and the more that he can use us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's one of the reasons that we're taking these next several weeks to study God through the many different ways and names that he is referred to within the Bible. And today we're going to look at God's formal name. And I'm going to split our time together into two parts. The first part is how the Bible goes from a generalized name of God that we looked at last week, Elohim, into the more specific name that we're going to study today. And second, what that name means for you and I today. So let's begin with the progression in the Bible from Elohim to the more formal name of God. Now prior to the Exodus... For thousands and thousands of years, people only knew God as Elohim. It was a description and a title more than his personal name. It would be like knowing a person only through what they are, but not who they are. And that was about to change for the people of Israel. God's getting ready to bring them out of 400 years of slavery of Egypt through his servant Moses. Now let's just review this story very quickly. God had been called to lead Israel out of Egypt when he was about 40 years old. Up until then, he had grown up in Pharaoh's palace, learning the very uh, ways of Egypt, being trained and educated in military tactics and how to rule and lead people. Then God calls him to lead his people out of Egypt. And God tries to incite Israel into violent action and slays a, and kills a slave master. But this was not a part of God's plan. This isn't what God wanted. It's like God said, Moses, I want you to lead the people of Israel. And then this is how I want you to do it. By the, by the time he said, this is how I want you to do it, Moses had already run out and killed somebody. So he had run and gone to do it in his own strength, but had stopped to listen to how God wanted it done. And because of that, no one responds to Moses' actions. And Moses has to run for his life into the, into the desert for 40 years. Now he's 80 years old. He's a shepherd and son-in-law and servant of his father-in-law, Jethro. Any thought of him fulfilling God's plan for his life, any thought of him being the man that would bring Israel out of their bondage is gone. He is just sitting there on the side of a mountain, tending the flocks. And that's where we pick up the story. Moses sees this burning bush, and God speaks to Moses out of the fire and renews his call to lead the people out of Egypt. Exodus 3, verse 13 
Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, Well, what is his name? What shall I then tell him? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am sent me to you. Let's pray. Father God, we can't say we really know somebody until we actually know their name. And Father God, I ask, Lord, that through our time here this morning, that you will allow us to grasp the wonder of your proper name. That we will come into a realization of everything that name encapsulates, everything that name means to us. So Lord, be with us now. Let your Holy Spirit speak into our hearts and firmly establish within it, I am who I am is for us because we are surrendered to you. Lord, be with us now in your name. Amen. I am. This is the first time in biblical history that God has specifically referenced himself through a name. Now, if you think about it, if you just read Exodus and you look at it and, it's, and God says, and Moses said, what is your name? And he said, I am. That kind of doesn't sound like much of a name, does it? It kind of sounds like a child who is refusing to clean their room and looking up at, at their parent and saying, how come I got to clean my room? And the parent says, because I said so. It almost sounds like that's God's answer to that. It almost sounds like I am is a snarky response to Moses' question. And if you read Exodus in English without considering the richness of the original language, and Hebrew is a, is a very rich language, and if you forget about the intent of the passage, you might come up with that same conclusion, that Moses is questioning God, and God is telling him in a very terse way, because I said so. Because I'm God, you're not, go do it. But that's not what the Father is doing here. He's revealing the first part of the mystery of his proper name. Before now, he has only existed in the minds of, of people as Elohim, the self-existent creator and judge of mankind. But now God chooses to get more personal and reveals part of his name. The Hebrew word for I am is Hewa, which is the root word for his official name that we'll see in, in a few moments. He gives Moses just this little part of his name at this point. But why didn't God just give him the whole name? Why didn't God just, just lay out the entire plan when he called Moses? I mean, it could have looked something like this. Moses, you're going to go and you're going to deliver the people, and this is how it's going to happen. You're going to go back to Egypt. The people, when you get there, they ain't going to believe you. Pharaoh isn't going to believe you. He's going to mock you and throw you out of his court. And by the way, things for the Israelites are going to get much worse before they get any better. Before the day of my deliverance, they're going to go through some suffering and they're going to hate you for a while. And because of Egypt's and because of Pharaoh's stubbornness to obey me, I'm going to release ten plagues upon them, ending with the death of their firstborn children. Then Pharaoh will let you go. 
And the Egyptians will be so anxious to get you out of the country, they're going to throw gold and silver so you'll go faster. You'll plunder the Egyptians. But then you're going to get to the Red Sea. And Pharaoh changes his mind and send his mighty army. The greatest army in the world at this time is going to come and chase you. you your people have absolutely no chance against this army. And your back is going to be to an ocean. You'll have absolutely no escape. And people will start yelling at you, why did you bring us out here to die? But then I'm going to open an ocean. And you're going to part and walk through this ocean as if you were on dry land, and Pharaoh's army will follow you in there. And then I'll cause the ocean to crash back upon them, and Pharaoh's army will be wiped out. You'll then lead these people to Mount Sinai. I'll give them my laws. I'll give them the Ten Commandments. And they will, still will not obey. They still will rebel against you at least ten times. Until I finally decree that not a single one of them over the age of 21 will enter in to the promised land. Except for two people, Joshua and Caleb. The rest of them are going to die walking in circles in the desert. And then Moses, for 40 years, you're going to lead these people. They're going to be stubborn. They're going to be obstinate. They're going to question you at every turn. They're going to cause you such heartache and heartburn and sleepless nights that you, you can't even, you'll come to me and say, I can't even stand it anymore, God. And by the way, even though you are mostly faithful, you make no mistakes except for one, it'll cost you ever entering into the promised land yourself. So... Moses, ready? Let's go. What do you think Moses would have done if God just would have laid out the whole thing right there? He wouldn't have gotten to the second sentence before Moses is running off the mountain for his life. And that's the way that God has to treat us sometimes. He can't always show us the whole picture from the beginning. Within the Bible, and when you, when you, when you study and take classes about biblical interpretation, is a principle called progressive revelation. Simply put, it says that God reveals himself through biblical history and even to you and me in stages. He just doesn't open up the entire treasury of heaven and show you at salvation. And the, re and the reason God can't do that is because, simply speaking, we can't handle it. We can't handle it. God's doing the same thing with his name here and giving it in small sections. Moses asked just to see one part of God's nature. He said, God, show me your glory. God said, I can't. You can't handle just even that one part of me. You can't handle that. It would be like trying to take an entire ocean and putting it into this 16-ounce bottle. It just won't work. It's not made to hold all of that. And you and I are the same way. God still uses this idea of progressive revelation throughout our lives as we seek to follow Jesus. And God shows us more and more of himself to those who diligently seek him. David said this in Psalm 25, 14, when he said that the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And you can't progress in your intimacy with God unless you see him for who he is. Many people who don't feel like they've progressed in their walk with God or they're growing in their walk with God, it's because you're stuck in yesterday's revelation because there was a condition of that revelation that you have not yet met because you're being stubborn. 
And if you don't progress, your, your life is going to be stalled and you'll start to backslide. I can tell you that from the personal experience, both in people I've seen and in my own life. But glory be to God, he seeks intimacy with us. And that's why he reveals to us his, his very personal name. Now, turning your Bibles over to Exodus chapter 6. Now Moses has obeyed the call of God, and now he's back in Egypt. He's told Pharaoh to let the Israelites go free at the command of God. Pharaoh responds through mockery, and he increases the workload of the people and the way that he's treating them, and treats them even more harshly than before. And that's the situation that sets up this conversation between God and Moses. Exodus 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God is giving a quick reminder to Moses here. Israel's deliverance will not be anything that you can take credit for. God gets right ahead of Moses' thinking here of seeking any glory for himself and repeating the same mistake that he made 40 years ago, thinking that it's going to be because of something he knows or something he learned while he was in Pharaoh's house. But God is not going to share his glory with a man. So he gets ahead of this. And God is saying to Moses, it's not because you are a great military leader that will get the glory. The world is going to find out that I am God from what I am about to do to the world's superpower right now. Through what I am about to do to Egypt, people will have no other explanation other than to say that I am God. Verse 2, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. We'll study that in a few weeks. But my name, the Lord, I did not make known to them. In most Bibles out there, most English translations, when you read the Old Testament, when God refers to himself or the Bible refers to himself using his actual name, it has a capital L-O-R-D in it. Capital Lord. That's referring to his official name. The Hebrew scribes who wrote and copied the Old Testament considered that name so holy, so intimate, and so personal and special to God that they never spelled it completely out. Because they respected the commandment that said, Thou shalt not use the Lord your God's name in vain. They didn't want a stray thought as they were copying this thing down to violate that commandment. So they only used the consonants of that word. Now, you see on the screen here, we have the name of God right here in Hebrew. They are the letters Yod, He, Yod, He, would be the letters within the Hebrew language. Remember that Hebrew is read right to left, not left to right like we read English. So that is the consonants um, that would be in English, Y-H-W-H. Theological term, if you ever study it, is the tetragrammaton. 
The vowels were never written down. But remember the Hebrew word for I am is hewa, which in the Hebrew language is a root word for this word. So given this clue, most theologians would then say the formal name for God is Yahweh. And that would be the correct pronunciation of it. Now some of you heard that God's name is pronounced Jehovah. And while I don't want to split hairs this morning, it does deserve just a very quick explanation. The reason that the, the pronunciation Jehovah exists comes from the King James Version of the Bible. In the King James Version of the Bible, it's pronounced Jehovah. But the King James translators had very incomplete documents to translate from compared to what we had today. They only had one codex. A codex is an entire copy of the Bible written generally in Greek. The, uh, today we have three, at least three complete codexes and 25,000 different manuscripts, supporting manuscripts to translate the Bible from, where they only had just a few. So they mistranslated it and pronounced it to be Jehovah. And I don't bring that up to cast any doubt on the, on the King James Version. It's an excellent version. It's faithful for the most part to the, to the biblical um, text as it was handed down to us. But it's going to make a little bit of a difference in our series um, when we start talking about the attributes that are listed beside God's name. For example, we have a song, and most of us who have been around Christianity for any length of time have uh, know Jehovah Jireh. What is Jehovah Jireh? The God who provides. The Lord will provide. The correct pronunciation for that, though, is Yahweh Yireh. So that's going to make a difference um, in a few weeks when we start talking about that. So just be ready for that. And that's, I just wanted to make that a little bit of an aside. So in a few weeks, you're, you're not thinking I'm crazy when I'm, mis when I'm pr pronouncing it a little bit different. I'm just trying to be accurate with what the Bible actually um, teaches here. So what is the truth behind God's formal name? That kind of closes out the first part of this sermon. And what does it mean for you and me today? And why does it matter as much on Monday morning when you're getting ready for your week as it does right now in church? There's three basic reasons. Number one, by showing us his name, he proclaims who he is in his entirety. There is so much wrapped up within that name. A few minutes ago we said that, that Yahweh Yaira is our provider, but that's not all he is. All of God's attributes, as seen through the many ways that the Bible describes him, is summed up within his very name, Yahweh. When you say that name, you bring all of his mercy, all of his faithfulness, all of his justice, all of his might, all of his power, all of his glory, all of his love, and all of his wrath. Just to list just a few attributes to bear at the same time. It's all contained within that name. Let me give you a quick example of what I'm talking about. When God the Son... Jesus appears as the angel of the Lord to Jacob or to Samson's parents. And they ask him, what is your name? What is the name of, of the God that we're talking to? He said, what did he say? He said to both, my name is wonderful. It's too wonderful for you to understand. It's too wonderful for you to grasp. Remember the example of trying to put an ocean into a 16-ounce bottle? That is everything his name represents. 
And there's so much wrapped up in his name, Yahweh, that we have to examine only a single attribute at the time. And that's why the Bible breaks down God's names into all these different attributes, like Jehovah's Jireh, like El Shaddai, like Elohim, and all these other names that we're going to be studying over the next couple of months. So that we can start to see God through all the various ways that he is. Yahweh's name as I was studying this, I just found it to be so incredible that the only way I can even describe it is just reading lyrics to a song I love called Lift Up Holy Hands. That says he's one holy, wonderful, marvelous, glorious, omnipotent, righteous, and mighty. That just, it just makes me want to sing that kind of praise to him. His name is incredible, wonderful, indescribable, and inscrutable. And if you are here today, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, one of the glories of heaven, think about this for a moment, one of the glories of heaven is that you're going to experience the ability to look upon God and continually, for all eternity, see different facets of him and worship him according to that. Think about the, the, the seraphim who surround his throne and cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy. It isn't because they're programmed to. They have been seeing this for the last 6,000 years of creation and still look upon him and see only his holiness and still cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty because they see another facet of just that one thing that they are there to guard, his holiness. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our very lives. The second reason the name of Yahweh is important to us is that by giving us his name, his proper name, he declares himself unchanging. Theological term is that God is immutable, unchanging. He's saying, I am. I am Yahweh. I am unchanging. And there's a misconception about the God of the Old Testament. I've heard a lot of people tell me when I'm witnessing to them, you know, I love Jesus, but God, I don't know about him. I don't know about him wiping out people in the Old Testament. I don't know because to me he just seems like this cranky, vindictive tyrant that's interested in ruling people to the point of a sword. That he's just kicking back and saying, yeah, go ahead and mess up. I have a lightning bolt with your name on it. And that's people's conception of the God of the Old Testament. But God is unchanging. He's the same God that said, let there be light. It's the same God that sent Jesus to the cross and the same God that exists within this room right now. He just didn't take a 400, years, a 400 year vacation between the last words of Malachi and the first words of Matthew and kind of chill out and, and get saved or something and now he's the kinder, gentler God. Then these same people will look at Jesus as a kind and gentle soul that occasionally said nice things and, and said, hey, guys, be awesome to each other. Be cool to each other. Be nice to each other. And then gently laid down on a cross and gently died to pay the price for our sins. That's not the Bible or the Jesus that the Bible tells us about. And that's definitely not Yahweh God. They are the same God. Let me illustrate that a little bit from the Old Testament. Earlier we talked about the angel of the Lord. 
And when the angel of the Lord is identified, he's identified as the angel of the capital L-O-R-D, which means it's saying that he is the angel of Yahweh. Now, what did God say about his glory? His glory is found in his name, and he will not share his glory with another. So for an angel to describe themselves as the angel of Yahweh would be trying to kind of take that glory from God. So the fact that an angel is called that has to mean that this is somebody pretty special here. It is widely accepted, and I believe, that the angel of Yahweh is a pre-incarnate um, showing of Jesus to us. That Jesus was showing himself as the messenger of God. What did the angel of the Lord do in the Old Testament? Well, Joshua knew him as a commander of the Lord's army. Jacob wrestled with him. Samson's parents offered sacrifices to him, which he accepted. So it is not just an angel. that has to be a member of the Trinity. He also was a judge. He also was an executioner. By my reckoning, just through a brief survey, Angel of the Lord was directly responsible for the death of about a half a million people in the Old Testament. That's Jesus. People will say, that can't be Jesus. Jesus loves people. He doesn't kill them. Well, then you must not have been here for our Sunday school class last year when we covered Revelation 19. Jesus comes back and slays millions just by speaking the word of God to them. What does all that mean, though? For this, it means that we have to understand that Elohim in verse or Genesis chapter one is Yahweh in Exodus, is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and Jesus in the New Testament, because God's nature has never changed, never will change, and never can change. The same God that said, Let there be light, is the same God that is here today and will be in existence throughout eternity. For us, he is a loving, benevolent Father God for those who love him. He is patient for those struggling with sin and wanting to be clean. He is long-suffering for those who insist on rebelling against him. But there comes a time when he will say, enough is enough, and then he will become judge. God's nature never changes. And it would be wise to remember that when we walk before him on this earth. God will bring every deed into judgment. The third and final point is that by giving us his name, he is placing the honor, the power, and the majesty of his name on every single covenant promise that is found in the Bible. Just as God's nature never changes, God's word is unchanging. How many people here have entered into a formal contract at some point in their life? You've bought a house, bought a car, you bought a wife, as <laughs> <is> Conrad saying, <laughs> or entered into a marriage contract, signed up for the military. You've entered into the for in some type of formal contract. Technically, every time you use your debit card, you are entering into a contract that you will pay the money back to that vendor that you're buying something for if for some reason the credit card doesn't pay for it. So what is the last step in ratifying a contract? 
signing your formal name to that contract. Even if it's a scribble on a credit card receipt, it is your formal name that you're supposed to be writing down. You see that beautifully illustrated in Genesis chapter 15 with God's contract and covenant with Abram. God's about to enter into a contract and that covenant promise. God promises Abram a son, even though physically Abram and Sarai are unable to bear children. He promises them that their children will be more than the stars in the sky. In Genesis 15, verse 9, he says, The Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him and cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Skipping down to verse 17, When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. A little bit of explanation of what's happening here. In the Eastern culture of that time, whenever a covenant or a contract was entered into, the two parties making that contract would take something very valuable to them, usually an animal, and cut it in half. And then they would actually hold hands and they would both walk between it and repeat, may what has happened to these animals today happen to us if we have violated this contract and this covenant that we are making with each other today. That was a way that the Near Eastern people would enter into formal contracts and covenants. Now consider what we just read. Did God take Abram's hand and walk with him between these two animals? No. God himself made this promise. He put his holy name Yahweh onto this promise. And God is saying, for the sake of my good and my awesome name, this promise will come to pass. That's how serious God is when it comes to his promises for you. When he says he's going to um, bring you safely into his kingdom, if you accept Jesus Christ, it is his name, his very blood on that covenant. That, and that is why it is so serious to him. Ra Yahweh would rather be torn in half than allow one of his promises to you be broken and unfulfilled. That's what his name, Yahweh, means to you and me. Yahweh's name is wonderful and beyond comprehension. And I thank you, Jesus, for that because I don't want to fully comprehend you. I just want to be surrounded by the mystery and learn to trust you and have faith. Yahweh's name declares that he is unchanging and immutable. And I thank you for that, Lord, that you have awesome laws and awesome truth found in your word and that it is unchanging, that it is a, a rock I can grab onto. And I thank you, God, that Yahweh's name is the very promise that we all can hold on to when life seems like it's an unwinnable circumstance or whenever the enemy comes in like a flood, whenever circumstances seem dark, that we can look back and say it is Yahweh's name 
that made this promise to me. And I will cling to that no matter what.